This morning, congregation, we return to our series in the book of Micah, and so we're going to be reading from Micah chapter 2 in your pew Bible. You can find that on page 1071. 1071. It's been a number of weeks since we've preached from the book of Micah, and so a bit of reminder as we find page 1071 in Micah 2. Uh, Micah is a prophet of the Lord, of course, and his oracles are recorded by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah, ministering in approximately the 8th century before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the big event, so to speak, that is on the horizon as Micah prophesies is the Assyrians coming and eventually causing the exile of the northern tribes, those tribes referred to as Israel, those ten northern tribes. They will be carried out of the land of promise because of the apostasy, especially the idolatry. And they had gone after the gods of the nations. And the Lord was displeased with them, and so he would cause them to be carried out of the land through the instrumentality of foreign armies. Micah ministers especially to the southern tribes, uh, the tribes known as Judah. You might say the southern tribes were more conservative than the northern tribes. Uh, And with their conservatism, uh, they began to fall into a certain mentality of covenantal presumption. Uh, Life was rather good economically, uh, so various external factors, life was rather good in the south, and there was this dangerous tendency that they began to congratulate themselves that they were not the northern tribes, that they were not like uh, those tribes who were going to be carried out of the promised land. Uh, And so Micah, seeing through the revelation given to him as a prophet from God, seeing the forthcoming events, ministers especially to the rural communities uh, in the southern part of the nation of Israel, uh, and he warns them uh, in many ways of this covenantal presumption. And he has spoken earlier in this chapter Uh, a strong oracle, that judgment indeed will not only limit itself to the north, but that God's chastising judgment will also come in due time on the south for the sins that they have committed. Having given a rather dark oracle, the text that we'll be considering this morning uh, is a ray of light, and we'll find that at the end of chapter 2. In many ways, and that's why I chose to sing from uh, selection ADB, when you think of verse 4, in many ways verse 4 is exactly what is happening uh, in Micah 2. That verse read as follows, Thy vineyard no longer, thy tender care knows, defenseless the victim and spoil of her foes. O turn, we beseech thee, all glory is thine, look down in thy mercy and visit thy vine. You might say these oracles, these prophetical statements in chapter 2, are especially to incite within us uh, this type of prayer, this type of request. Also, as we consider the church in our own and current day. So we read from Micah chapter 2. Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. They, they covet fields and take them by violence, also houses and seize them. So they oppress a man in his house a man in his inheritance. Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, which you cannot remove your necks, nor shall you walk haughtily, for this is an evil time. And that day one shall take up a proverb against you and lament with a bitter lamentation, saying, We are utterly destroyed. He has changed the heritage of my people, how he has removed it from me. 
to a turncoat he has divided our fields. Therefore you will have no one to determine boundaries by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not prattle, you say, to those who prophesy, so they shall not prophesy to you. They shall not return insult for insult. You who are named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord restricted? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You pull off the robe with the garment from those who trust you as they pass by, like men returned from war. The women of my people you cast out from their pleasant houses. From their children you have taken away my glory forever. Arise and depart, for this is not your rest. Because it is defiled, it shall destroy, yes, with utter destruction. If a man should walk in a false spirit and speak a lie, saying, I will prophesy to you of wine and drink, even he would be the prattler of this people. And then the words of our text for this morning, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. The one who breaks open will come up before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. Thus far then, the reading for this morning from the word of God. I made the Lord add his blessing uh, to both the reading and also to the expounding on this word. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Bible is a book of contrast. Uh, we see that contrast already uh, in the very opening chapters as it speaks of the activity of God himself and as it then also speaks about the activity uh, of Satan. A book of contrast also we find in the closing book, in the book of Revelation. Uh, you have some of the uh, bowls of judgment being poured out upon humanity, but then you also have the praise and the exaltation of the redeemed people of God. And especially in the book of uh, Psalms, you see this contrast in Psalm 1, there is the contrast between the ungodly and then the righteous. I would submit to you that also in the prophets there is this contrast, a contrast of what we call oracles or prophecies or foretellings of days of intense darkness, of spiritual darkness. But then in the backdrop of that spiritual darkness, there is also this bright light of hope that shines forth. So as the prophets continue their ministry within the Old Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ, within that covenant nation of Israel, the, the prophets had, you might say, one message with a, a dual application. There was the prediction uh, of the coming darkness of God's righteous judgment, but there was also then this promise of hope. And we trust that you see, even in the reading of Micah 2, both of those colors, so to speak, the dark color of God's justice, upon sin, but also then the bright color of God's grace of redemption. Uh, this morning, uh, to encourage us as we walk in the light, in the light of God's promise, in the light of God's promise of covenantal faithfulness, including His grace and His mercy to those who fear Him, we look upon our text from Micah 2, verses 12 and 13. Underneath this theme, the Lord promises His people a regathering or a reassembly. Uh, now, a recent article that has been referred to in the Christian Renewal spoke about the church uh, as assembly required. Well, what our text is saying to continue that theme is that an assembly is required, but also a reassembly. 
A reassembly is indeed required and is prophesied. Now, boys and girls, maybe an assembly and reassembly, maybe those terms, those words are rather big words. So I want to try to give you an illustration. I don't know if you play with Legos still. Uh, I know in, when I was a kid, I played with Legos. And when my own children were small, they played with Legos. And, and there's this situation that I think is timeless. Maybe you play with Legos and you put together a, a, a neat thing. Maybe you build a, a car or, or some other a spaceship maybe. And then perhaps you've assembled this, you put it all together, but maybe you have a younger brother, or maybe it's an older brother. And maybe it's an accident, maybe it's not such an accident, but maybe they wreck your Lego. They wreck your car. Or they wreck your, your spaceship. And then you need to put it back together again. You need to reassemble it. But what our text from Scripture shows is that God, the Lord God, assembled, put together a special people, a special people who were to praise him through a sanctified life, but especially through worshiping God. But then their sin had come and had destroyed that which God had put together. But in our text, God promises that he's not done with this work, that he will, by his providence and in his grace and in his faithfulness, put it back together again as we unfold that theme for our encouragement, but also for the glory of God, we'll notice, first of all, the need for the regathering, and then secondly, the source of the regathering, and then thirdly, the description of the regathering. So the need, the source, and the description of this promised regathering of the Lord's people. First of all, then, rather briefly, we can look at the need for the regathering. There was a need for a regathering given the forthcoming scattering. The forthcoming scattering of the covenantal people of the Lord God, not specifically in reference to the northern tribes, although of course they also would be scattered, but in our text more specifically in reference to the southern tribes as they too would be scattered. The Lord had gathered this people together, having led them out of Egypt by a strong and an outstretched arm, uh, but now after generations had passed in the promised land, uh, in the land of Canaan, uh, the Lord God Almighty was going to use the foreign nations and use all types of providential circumstances uh, to scatter his people. But why? Why would the Lord scatter his people uh, through an impending exile by the way of foreign nations? Uh, well, you notice verse 10 of our preceding context. Although it's most likely uh, a separate oracle, a separate prophetical statement, it sheds light into why there is this need for the covenant people of God uh, to be regathered. You'll notice there that the prophecy includes this exhortation or this reality. The Lord says, arise and depart, for this is not your rest because it is defiled. It shall destroy, yes, with utter destruction. So the Lord says to his covenantal people, which again, it's helpful to bear in mind that in the Old Testament, when we speak about Israel, or more specifically Judah, when we speak about the covenant people, we refer really to the church. Because what is the church? Grammatically within the Bible, the church is a people who have been called out of the world and who have been gathered together. Those are the two most basic words in the Greek and in the Hebrew to identify what the church is. A certain particular people who have been called by God's grace and his mercy from out of the general mass of fallen humanity and who have been gathered together 
as a unique people, and that's what Israel had as its identity. But they had not lived as the unique people of God. You will remember, of course, even as we read it this morning, that the first commandment given in the Decalogue is that you shall have no other gods before me. But what Israel, and by a certain extent also Judah, had done is they had fabricated all sorts of other gods. They had looked around, and this is always the great danger for the church, they had looked around and they had seen what the nations were doing, and they had said, oh, that seems really neat. Yes, let's, let's, let's build an idol. Let's fabricate something a tangible that we can visually see and that we can bow down and that we can worship. But then also, uh, affluency had come. And there began to be this trust and this reliance in the material blessings of the Lord God. And so uh, Judah said, well, life is good and we have prosperity. Let us trust in our own creativity to generate prosperity. And gradually and slowly, the covenant people of Israel forgot the Lord their God and began to live just as the surrounding nations. Uh, you see this especially uh, in verse 1 of chapter 2. Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. And he goes on to describe some of the social injustices that were not referring to the social injustices of the Assyrians, but rather to that of the covenant community. And so this scattering that would come about by God's chastising hand is the need for the regathering. But, but that's looking at it corporately, so to speak. But in the corporate sense, there's also then the breakdown to the personal, the personal reason why there is a need for regathering. Because what is a corporate body? Uh, it is simply the gathering of individual persons. So when you think of a Christian congregation, we refer to a Christian congregation uh, as one corporate body. And, and so Covenant Reformed Church is one corporate body. But you cannot have a corporate body unless you have individual persons making up that corporate body. And so the Bible often speaks not just individualistically, but also corporately. Israel, as a corporate nation, was going to be exiled because of the sin, but the sin that had plagued Israel was a sin that was committed by individual persons collectively together. And so this regathering is necessary because of the reality of sin. And not only the reality of sin, but also the severity of sin. There was a real, if we can say it this way, there was a real sin problem within the covenant people of the Lord God. And there was a severe sin problem. Now every sin problem is a severe sin problem because of the nature of sin that is of a rebellious, hostile rejection of God. So individual persons who made up the corporate body of Israel had rebelliously rejected the lordship of their redemptive God. And in essence, the Lord says, not that he is a reactionary figure, not as if he looks down and he sees how we will make our play and then he decides how he will make his play. It's not some type of cosmic chess match. But the Lord responds to the rejection that his people have towards him by saying, I will cast you out of the land of promise, out of the land of rest. Because of your sin, 
because of your iniquity, because of your idolatry. And is this not exactly what we find also uh, in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve walk in fellowship with God, but when they violate the moral commands of God, they are sent out from the presence of God. And this also is what our Heidelberg Catechism talks about. What three things must we know in order to live and die in the joy of this covenantal comfort? Three things. The first, and it's not as if it's just you go from one and then you graduate to the second and you're done with the first, but the first element of an experiential knowledge that the Holy Spirit through the Word must bring into our soul is that we would acknowledge, that we would recognize, that we would see how great our sins and the resulting consequence of our misery or of our alienation. And of course, sins are the cause of that alienation. And so we must come to know, and part of the way in which we come to know this is by reading the oracles of the prophets as they incite against the covenantal people of God, the promises of the Lord, also in regards to his exile of them. You can think of Isaiah 59, verse 2. And there, Isaiah, and remember again, he is a contemporary of Micah, he says of the ten northern nations, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And, and so Israel, and also Judah, must be scattered from out of the land of rest. And as they are scattered, this brings about a need for a regathering. But what does that mean for us today? living as the church in the 21st century. I would submit to you that if you were to survey the situation of the Western church of Christianity, you see that it has been scattered. The Christian church in our day and in our land has been scattered. You ask where the evidence is? The evidence is in the declining numbers. The evidence is in the empty buildings. The evidence is in the apostating, the apostating of denominations. The evidence is in the numbers of those who claim no church affiliation any longer, but who once did. And when we recognize this in light of the testimony of Scripture, then there ought to be the prayer which we have sung, where we acknowledge Thy vineyard no longer, thy tender care knows, defenseless the victim and spoil of her foes. But out of that recognition comes this prayer, O turn, we beseech thee, all glory is thine, look down in thy mercy and visit thy vine. And that points us to what we consider in our second point, the source of the regathering. There is going to be a regathering of the church as prophesied by Micah. But the source of that regathering is important for us to identify so that we can turn our hope and our expectation upon that source. And so the source is simply a covenantal source and a royal source. Uh, notice that the emphasis in uh, this text, as it is all throughout Scripture, and as hopefully it is within the midst of our congregation, it, it's not upon what man is going to do. It's not even upon what the leaders of Israel are going to do. It's not even upon what the prophets are going to do. Uh, there's not this note of hope. Yes, we're going through the prediction of exile, but we know that we will be able to remedy it ourselves. We know that we'll be able to reform ourselves. We know that we can just, so to speak, uh, get the right personnel in positions of leadership and, and turn right the upside-down ship. But no, the hope is constantly upon what 
the Lord God will do. And if you just look at verse 12 as it's structured with its uh, prophetic poetic structure, notice the I, I, I in verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you. I will surely gather the remnant. I will put them together like sheep of the fold. One of the greatest, you might say, errors of the covenant people of the Lord God in the 8th century B.C. was that they were focused upon what they were going to do. And this is a constant temptation also in the life of the church. Whether it be as a corporate body, what we as covenant reformed church are going to do, or whether it be an individual person, what I as a gospel minister, what I am going to do, what I am going to accomplish. And you you can have the same mentality sitting in the pew. Well, I am going to do this, and I am going to do that. And then that can begin, so to speak, to radiate throughout. Well, we are going to do this, but that's not where the faithful people of God are to place their hope. Yes, certainly we labor and we work as instruments of the Lord God, but our hope must be placed upon the fact that the Lord God has said that He would do something. He, as the covenantal Lord, is going to do something. And what He's going to do is that He will bring about a future reassembling of the church. Yes, they would be scattered through exile. But the Lord promises that He will not forget what He has said to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He would not turn His back eternally upon His covenant people. And this is a great source of hope and of encouragement. Uh, We think, for example, of a text that Providentially, we quoted also last week, we believe, Psalm 30, verse 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with Him is abundant redemption, and He shall redeem Israel from all His iniquities. And so as we also see similar circumstances to what Micah saw, our hope cannot be directed to what Persons will do, but our hope ought to be directed to what our covenantal Lord will do. And that's what you also see in Psalm 80 as we sang it. Uh, When the psalmist says, thy vineyard no longer, thy tender mercy knows, he doesn't say, but I'm going to rededicate myself, and I'm going to re-energize myself, and I'm going to continually foster the cultivation of this tender plant, and I'm going to bring about a remarkable reform. No, his prayer is that when the Lord would revive Thy name we will praise. Uh, Perhaps it wouldn't be fitting to say this as a Reformed minister, but Martin Luther, in the midst of the great Protestant Reformation, he made a statement, which I paraphrase at one point, uh, when he was asked about how this Reformation came to sweep all of Europe. He acknowledged that he himself did nothing. Well, now, of course, he did activity. He did ministerial activity. Uh, He preached and he taught and he wrote. He said, I did nothing. He goes on to say that he did nothing except drink beer with Melanchthon. Now that certainly was not a statement of some type of debauchery activity. He said, I I preached and I I, I taught and then I just fellowshiped with my co-laborer Melanchthon and God did something. I want to ask ourselves, what is our hope for this congregation? Do we think that a man can do something? 
Do we think, oh, if only we get all of the personnel lined up just right, then the Lord will cause His blessing to come upon us. And then perhaps there will be the restoration of favor. Then our hearts will sing with joy and gladness. Then we will experience the blessings if, if we place our hope in man. First of all, that's the wrong place to put our hope. But secondly, we will be sorely, sorely disappointed. And perhaps a word needs to be said to this congregation in particular. Do not put your hope in men. However gifted they may have been, however useful they may have been, but rather put your hope in the Lord God. And in his covenantal promises that he would never leave us and he would never forsake us. Especially through the royal activity of this king that is referenced. You'll notice that Micah points out, yes, the Lord would do this. you notice that in verse 12. But then also there is this mention of a king in verse 13. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. Well, when we ask ourselves, who is this king? It's not David. It's not Solomon. Their bodies lie in the grave, but it is the greater than David, and it is the greater than Solomon. It is ultimately tying to this messianic expectation that the faithful of Israel had. It's ultimately tying in to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so just one cross-reference this morning, uh, if you care to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 4, or just listen attentively. And what you have in Luke 4 is the realization of Micah 2 verse 13, because there is a messianic promise in Micah 2, verse 13, there is a promise that Jesus Christ would do something. And that what Jesus Christ would do would be the basis for this regathering of the scattered and exiled covenant community. And so in Luke 4, as Jesus Christ, in verse 18, as he begins his public ministry, his ministry of reconciliation, uh, he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. I remember again, Isaiah is a contemporary of Micah. He's engaged in his prophetic ministry at the same time. And when he, that is Jesus, had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And all of those phrases refer in part uh, to the experience of exile and the consequences of exile that had come upon Israel and also including Judah in former days. And so when he closed the book, he then began to say in verse 21, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so while it's not a direct reference uh, to Micah 2, verse 13, uh, it is certainly an indirect reference to Micah 2, verse 13. And so when the Lord Jesus Christ came in his public ministry, as he not only preached, but also as he performed miraculous wonders, demonstrating the healing power of our great and mighty God. As he then continued in his public ministry, leading to the culminating steps of humiliation when he was crucified, when he descended down to the depths of hell, only to reemerge victoriously, conquering uh, the evil one and the powers of darkness. It is then especially, and as he continues 
ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand, it is there especially that we have this royal source, this covenantal royal source upon which there is this promise that Jesus Christ could state, I will build my church. And what is the building of the church but the regathering of those who have been scattered? The gathering by the way of the preaching of the gospel, that call of the gospel that proclaims this is the acceptable year in which there can and must be repentance and faith towards Jesus Christ. And a regathering around the throne of the Lamb with the exercise of this repentance and the exercise of this faith. You see, there's no other way to this regathering other than the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, other than the Messiah. And what happens is when our eyes of expectation are taken off of men and women, when our eyes of expectation are taken off of persons, where else do they then go? We dare not trust in our own material wealth because that, of course, is fleeting. Moth and rust will destroy it all. We dare not trust in our own achievements because what are they? The result of God's grace and even at that stained and impacted by sin. We dare not trust in men because the best of men are men at best. When every other avenue, so to speak, and this is also seen uh, with the opening Lord's Days of the Heidelberg Catechism, when every other avenue is shut off and when we realize the insufficiency of anything and everything else to reconcile us to the Lord God, then our eyes become consumed with the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would submit to you that that is what we need. And when we ask, does the church have a future? Does the church have a hope? Our answer would be yes. Well, what is that future? What is that hope? It is Jesus Christ. The royal king of David. Full stop. What do we mean by full stop? Don't put and behind that. Don't think, well, our hope is Jesus Christ and the fact that we have a wonderful pedigree. Our hope is not Jesus Christ and the fact that we still hold to the old paths. If we hold to the old paths, that is good and wonderful and necessary. But our hope must be in Jesus Christ because He is the essence of that will bring about this regathering. And the description of this regathering in our third point, this is something that is sure and something that is sizable. By sure, in the subpoint, we mean this is an absolutely certain regathering. If the last two years living underneath a so-called global pandemic have taught us anything, it has taught us that we make our plans. But oftentimes we need to change our plans how many events I, I wish at the beginning of the pandemic i would have kept count how many events or activities have been canceled how many times since you if you're still you know a dinosaur and you keep a paper calendar uh, with events how many times do you have to go in there and erase them uh, if you're up on modern technology how many times since you go into your google calendar and hit delete event seems nothing's really certain in life anymore but one thing is certain 
That is that there will be a spiritual regathering of the people of God based upon the absolute reliability of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Notice again, if we pay careful attention to the grammar of our text, verse 12 does not say, I will try to assemble, I will attempt to assemble, I will give my best effort at assembling. No, because this is the covenant of Lord speaking about the royal king, Jesus Christ. And so there is this note of absolute certainty. I will, and, and, and that would be sufficient there, but then the Holy Spirit, to accommodate our own weaknesses and our own doubts, adds this word, I will certainly, surely, absolutely, I will accomplish this. And, and now, boys and girls, sometimes... Maybe your mom and maybe your dad or maybe even you say that you're going to do something, but then you're not able to do it because of some unforeseen circumstance or some limit to your power or your abilities. And this is why our knowledge of God is so helpful. When God promises to do something, He will do it because of His wisdom, because of His knowledge, but also because of His, what we call, omnipotence or His power There is nothing that God purposes to do that He does not have the power to accomplish. And He has the power to accomplish anything and everything that He sets out to do because of the authority of His Word. He speaks and it is done. And this ought to be a great encouragement for us, especially also in regards to uh, the continuation of the church. You can think and maybe you see even in a very practical way, all that is against the church, the attacks of the evil one as they come in a variety of forms, uh, as all types of heresies and false teachings and false practices uh, impact the church and continually bombard it. And then you look internally and within the church, and that's often where the greatest threat is, internal divisions, ongoing friction and strife, failures of persons. You might say the whole world is against the church. And indeed, in many cases, that's a fair and accurate summary. The whole world is against the church, but Christ is for the church. And because Christ is for the church, having purchased the church with His own blood, there's an absolute certainty that there will be and is already now continually ongoing a regathering or a reassembling of the church. And, and it's not just one here and one there. Uh, it is and it will be a, a sizable regathering. Now, there are certainly days and eras in history in which the church is reduced to almost nothing, as our Belgian confession refers to, as in the days in which there were only 7,000 left in the nation of Israel who did not bend the knee to the foreign gods. But notice uh, that verse 12 speaks about a flock that makes a loud noise because of so many people. A loud noise. Now, this is not just some rancorous uh, noise. This is rather uh, the joyful song of a multitude of those who are assembled together for the praise and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. May I just ask in passing as we begin to draw to a close, do you love to hear the church of God singing and to sing heartily? Have you had those times uh, in God's providence when you've been in the midst of a sizable number of people singing one of the familiar songs of Zion? And it would almost seem that the rafters are lifted off of the foundations of the building in which you assemble together. 
Does that not bring joy and gladness to your heart? Now we understand, although it's often misapplied, we understand that Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them. And we understand that the gatherings of the militant church at times in secrecy and in small numbers is not such a robust and hearty song. But do we not desire a sizable people? Again, not so that any accolades can be given to human persons, but that our God might be greatly praised and honored and glorified. And this desire ought to be behind missionary work and evangelistic work. But mission work and evangelistic work that is saturated with the prayer that God would accomplish His purposes and that through the covenant of grace and through the mediator of the covenant of grace, the royal head, the King Jesus Christ, that many might come to join us as we make our way to our heavenly land of rest, singing the praises and the glory of God. And so there ought to be this continual desire within our heart. Lord, this prophecy of Micah 2, verse 12 and 13, where you speak about many people making a loud noise as they have been gathered together by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we see the beginnings of that day. How wonderful would it be if the the faithful churches of God were filled and that the souls of the people of God were filled with a recognition of the grace and the mercy so that our songs burst forth. And that perhaps as people came and observed, they would say, look at, figuratively speaking, they lift the rafters off of their meeting places. Wouldn't it be wonderful, absolutely wonderful, if the faithful churches of God had to have meetings and and had to contemplate uh, spatial restrictions and say, well, where are we going to put the people who have come to worship the Lord God in spirit and in truth? Well, the warning is, of course, that our human pride, of course, needs to be checked. And perhaps that's part of the reason why we do not see the fulfillment of such promises, at least as we would envision the fulfillment of them. But there's also this point of reflective application. Do we expect such a day? Do we long for such a day? Or have we perhaps given in to the pessimistic spirit, well, the church is small and it's getting smaller. So it goes. You know, there is what I call, and it's not original with me, but there is a certain Eeyore mentality. Boys and girls, I don't know, I, I, I think Winnie the Pooh is a still popular book to read. Uh, maybe some of you boys and girls, you know Winnie the Pooh, and you know his friend Eeyore. I say Eeyore mentality because Eeyore always kind of had this woe is me and woe are we attitude. And that mentality can sometimes creep into churches, conservative churches, reformed churches. Woe is me and woe are we. We're small and we're getting smaller. So it goes. When you read Psalm 80, that wasn't the attitude of the psalmist. Lord, we currently experience something of your chastising disfavor. But let your face shine upon us. That's not the spirit that Micah has. Yes, he gives oracles of dark days but also this bright light. And focusing on that bright light of the prophecy concerning what God will do in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, 
you and I ought to commit ourselves to earnest, expectant prayer. Father, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit, may we begin to see something of what is predicted here, what is prophetically predicted, that many people may make a loud noise as a flock of the remnant of Israel who have been gathered together and assembled by the work of our great God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we do ask that you would bless your word to our souls this morning. Our Lord, we do confess our own sins that at times interrupt the experience of communal fellowship with you and at times bring upon your chastising hand also upon a corporate body such as a church. Our Lord, for our sins, we humbly repent, but we do so in hope that you have promised that there would be a gathering, a regathering, a reassembling. We pray, Lord, that by your sovereign grace, you would continue to accomplish your purposes, that a great mighty multitude might glorify you and praise you, especially in corporate worship throughout the days of our lives and into all of eternity. And may the day quickly come in which we join with that multitude in the heavenly realm, in which we also look and behold a great multitude which no one could number out of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues who are standing before the throne and before the Lamb, being clothed with white robes, even with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen.